Good evening. Welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray. With me via Squadcast is my co-host, Dr. Robert Spies, and our guest tonight, a returning guest who was with us six years ago, if you can believe that. In 2015, we had an interview on fire ecology with Dr. Chad Hansen, and we're really happy to have him back with us again tonight, uh, especially with all that is going on in the news. We are recording this interview on the last day of August, and of course, uh, right now is a lot of fire in the news, and we're really grateful that Dr. Hansen has time to talk with us about the subject tonight. Dr. Hansen has a new book, Smokescreen, Debunking Wildfire Myths to Save Our Forests and Our Climate. So that'll give you a little bit of an idea of what we're going to talk about tonight. Dr. Hansen, welcome to the Ecology Hour. Thank you. I'd like to just uh, have you start off by maybe talking a little bit about what you have been doing uh, as far as scientific research in the last six years since we had you on before. Uh, you gave us a great interview and a really great story about the post-fire ecological succession that happens and why forests, uh, especially California forests, are not actually harmed by fire, but in fact rejuvenated by it. Thanks. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's an interesting topic and certainly one that's that's very timely right now with large fires occurring uh, you know, this year and also last year. And one of the things that we were talking about in 2015 was uh, the, the Rim Fire. And you know, it was a big fire, uh, certainly at that time, 257,000 acres. And you know, we've seen some bigger ones since then. But at that time, there was a lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty. Um, the fire occurred in the, the summer and, and through the fall of 2013. So when we were talking in 2015, it was still, you know, really early days after the Rim Fire. And I'd already spent a fair amount of time in the fire area. But the post-fire succession, the natural forest regeneration and regrowth, you know, it's, it doesn't all happen in year one post-fire. You know, it starts in some places in year one. In other places, it still looks pretty pretty bare in year one post-fire. And, and um, in year two, it starts to change. In some areas, it starts to change in, you know, three or four years post-fire. Um, there's always things going on in terms of wildflowers and shrubs and and uh, and oaks, but um, you know, in terms of the conifers, you know, which is I think the focus for a lot of people, um, you know, that doesn't all happen in one year post fire. So point is, there was a lot of uncertainty at that time, and we were already seeing some significant natural post fire conifer regeneration in the rim fire in these uh, in these large high intensity fire patches even at that time. But there were also large areas that had very little um, in 2015. And so, you know, a lot of people were thinking that they're going to stay that way. And um, back in 2015, the Forest Service was saying, and they're still saying this, um, they were saying that uh, those large high-intensity fire patches, especially the interior areas that are farthest away from live trees, that it will take many, many decades, maybe even hundreds of years for them begin to begin to regenerate. What we're actually seeing is something very, very different. And I published two studies uh, in the Rim Fire uh, since we spoke last, uh, on natural conifer regeneration in these large high-intensity fire patches in particular. And what we're finding is that, you know, there are a lot of areas that had very little or no conifer regeneration at one or two years post-fire that all of a sudden started having a lot of regeneration at three years post-fire. Some areas even that didn't have any at three started having it at five years post-fire. And now these areas that that people thought would not even start to regenerate for 100, 200 years. Um, they already have 300 naturally regenerating conifer seedlings and saplings per acre 
in many cases, over 10 or 12 feet tall already at eight years post-fire. And, um, you know, it's, it's a really important and I think very ultimately positive and hopeful message um, emerging from the scientific data. An interesting thing is it doesn't matter how far it is away from the nearest live surviving tree. I mean, this is in many cases, hundreds of meters away from the, the nearest tree that survived. And there aren't that many areas like that in the rimfire. Usually there's scattered patches of live trees, even throughout the interior of large high intensity fire patches. But, but there are some areas that are pretty far away from live trees and even more than a, a thousand feet or farther. Um, there's, there's hundreds of, of trees per acre regenerating naturally. Didn't need any planting. These are areas that, uh, you know, were just left to natural processes. And so, um, you know, how is that possible? You know, we, there's good data on, on how far wind can disperse seeds uh, from live conifers. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not that far. Um, and so the question is, how is that happening? And I think what we're realizing is that it's not just about the trees. You know, these are ecosystems and it's also the birds and it's the small mammals. And there are a lot of species wildlife species in the forest that disperse seeds all over the forest at, at any distance from a live tree. Yeah, we had a, an interview a few years ago with someone talking about the California oak woodlands. And it turns out that more than 90% of the, the big valley oaks you see growing that were planted by scrub jays. The dispersal by birds is actually their primary method of spreading across the landscape. Yep. And there are multiple bird species that do this, that disperse seeds or, or small mammal species that, that do this. You know, a number of seed caching birds, for example, and, and their, their spatial memories are incredible, better than the vast majority of people, I would say, um, probably myself included. <laughs> but they're not perfect. And there's always a certain percentage that they forget um, every year their location. Again, you know, it's just nature is complex. And of course, there are also seeds that survive in cones on the ground in the middle of large high intensity fire patches and little kind of protected spots next to a log or a rock or a base of a tree. There are seeds that survive in cones at the top of trees. Even when the trees get uh, killed by the fire, um, they drop those cones you know, a year or two later and there's viable seed in those cones. There's lots of ways that forests do this. And it's not just about how close the nearest live surviving tree is. Wasn't it you and uh, Dr. Dallasala that pointed out that the standing dead trees are a vital part of the regeneration because they actually provide little patches of shade and, and cool the soil off and retain a little bit of moisture right next to a standing dead snag that facilitates the re regrowth? Yeah, that's right. You know, it's a lot of the things that, um, that people have kind of dismissed as being important in natural forest succession after fire. Uh, turns out they're actually quite important. Standing snags are really important. And in a mature forest, if it burns at high intensity, there's actually quite a bit of shade uh, much of the day from those standing snags. Uh, shrubs, for example, the shrubs have been dismissed. You know, the, the people think, well, the shrubs are competing with the conifers. The conifers, you know, can't grow because there's too much shrub cover from these, these native shrubs that, that, uh, that uh, proliferate um, in, in many cases in patches after high intensity fire you know, classic fire following plants. But the, the truth is what we're finding is that um, that's just an assumption. If you look at that patch of shrubs, uh, you know, you you may not see the conifers, but if you actually go there and, uh, and, and put a plot there and actually look and pull the branches apart and look at the ground, you'll see the conifer seedlings and saplings growing up right through 100% shrub cover. And in fact, uh, you know, what... Um, what I think is emerging from the evidence is that uh, the, the conifers probably benefit from the shrubs, um, not so much the other way around. The shrubs probably don't benefit from the conifers, but the conifers benefit from the shrubs because the shrubs give them just that perfect mix of sun and shade 
They protect them from herbivory, from trampling. And most of these fire-following shrubs are nitrogen fixers. So they're, they're um, replenishing soil nitrogen and, and um, really creating conditions that are conducive to growth. And of course, uh, the snags, when they fall, uh, they also play a role because not only are they retaining, playing a role to facilitate the retention of soil moisture when they're on the ground, um, but they also create a, a, a shade at the local scale. And you'll see oftentimes these conifer seedlings growing right next to large down logs. Um, and um, because it gives that, that little microclimate that, that, uh, that benefits them. And then, of course, when they decay over time, they return nutrients to the soil and that facilitates growth, you know, that, the nurse log concept. So uh, a lot of these things that have not been thought uh, by, by in forestry circles, not, not been thought of as important, it turns out they're really, really vital in natural succession. And of course, these processes go back a long, long ways. You know, we've had, we've had fire in our forests for 350 million years on this planet. So this is deep evolutionary history. Yeah. Uh, I remember from the 2015 interview, the story about the beetles that would come in and lay their eggs sometimes from, I think, quite a long distance. Then the, uh, the pupae of the beetles would be burrowing in the, the snags, and then that would attract birds in turn, and it's kind of kick-starting a part of the ecological web. Yeah, it's, it's probably not a bad idea to just kind of revisit that briefly, because it's not just about what grows up in the understory after a fire, you know, and particularly in a high intensity fire patch, you know, where the fire kills most of all the, the trees. It's not just about what grows in the understory. That's of course important. Um, but it's also about uh, those, those fire killed trees. You know, I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had people make comments about a uh, high intensity fire patch and say things like, well, you know, it's too bad that forest was lost or it's too bad it's gone. And I have to ask them, well, where do you think it went exactly? You know, because the, the trees are still there. They're not live trees anymore. Now they're snags. And I guess I understand the thinking if, if people don't understand why snags matter, if they don't understand the role that they serve in the ecosystem, um, you, you could understand why they would think of them as something is like a nullity in a sense. But but nothing could be further from the truth ecologically. In fact, you know, that's the snags. That's where your that's where your life is. That's where your that's where your wildlife live. That's where they eat. That's where your a lot of your ecological richness is in, in those dead trees and down logs. So yeah, just just to kind of put it in a, in a nutshell, when fires burn, um, especially in those high intensity fire patches, you know they're they're sending up a lot of heat and a lot of smoke. And there are uh, many dozens of native beetle species um, we call wood boring beetles that have evolved receptors in their bodies to detect fire by heat or by smoke, depending on the species. And these are species of beetles that need recently fire-killed trees to reproduce. They will fly right toward the fire. And they, they arrive just you know, literally after the smoke is, is cleared and the trees have cooled, the fire-killed trees. And they, they lay their eggs on the charred bark of a fire-killed tree. The larvae develop. They bore through the bark into the wood of the tree. And they develop over time into an adult. And, and then they emerge and then go through another cycle um, or, or more in that snag forest. And eventually they have to leave and, and find... Uh, the, the adults have to leave and find a new fire area. But while they're in those snags, and, and there can be many, many dozens of them in a given individual snag, sometimes more. While they're in those snags, that's the primary food source for many different native woodpecker species that have in turn evolved to depend on the wood boring beetle larva as their primary food source. Uh, so, you know, I've talked before about the blackback woodpecker, but it's not the only one, the hairy woodpecker, white-headed woodpecker, and many others. 
And uh, so these woodpeckers, they literally eat thousands of these wood-boring beetle larvae every single year. And of course, you need a lot of fire-killed trees to, to, to support their populations. And, you know, that's not the only thing that matters about the snags. Of course, you know, they're a food source for the woodpeckers, but they're also softer than live trees. Dead trees are softer. And that matters for the woodpeckers because they excavate nest cavities. And, you know, these are monogamous species and uh, they excavate new nest cavities uh, every single year between two and four. Uh, mostly the male, but the female will, will share in the duties. And every spring she picks the one she likes the best. And that is where they raise their young. And what that means is those two or sometimes even three nest cavities that they create that they don't pick, those are available for all the other cavity nesting species in the forest that, that have to have nest cavities and trees to raise their young, but they can't create their own because they're not woodpeckers. Bluebirds, nuthatches, flying squirrels, chipmunks, on and on and on. There's dozens and dozens of, of bird and small mammal species. If you don't have the fire that kills patches of trees, then you can't have the, the beetles. And if you don't have the beetles, you can't have the woodpeckers. And if you don't have the woodpeckers, now you're losing bluebirds and you're losing nuthatches and you're losing uh, the flying squirrels and the chipmunks and, and, and many, many other cavity nesting species in the forest. And now you've got a problem because now, you know, what are your cooper socks, cooper socks and your goshawks going to eat, you know, and, uh, and you've got this cascading series of effects and ecological disruptions. If you don't have that, and so I guess what I'm, I'm trying to get across to folks is that even though it may be shocking sometimes from a human perspective, if you see a, a fire burn in an area that you know and have hiked through personally and, and know it as a green you know, stand of forest, it may be shocking from a human perspective initially. Um, but it's important to understand that that area is not destroyed. It's actually it's not habitat lost. It's habitat created by the fire. And if those areas are left alone and if they're not subjected to destructive practices like post-fire logging and artificial planting, if they're left to natural regeneration, they will turn into rich, ecologically valuable, cacophonous, colorful, uh, rejuvenated <laughs> ecosystems um, that are, frankly, uh, according to the current science, uh, comparable to old growth forests in terms of native biodiversity and wildlife abundance. Yeah, we're fortunate here on the Mendocino Coast that there are a lot of standing dead trees. Uh, most of them weren't fire killed. Uh, actually, a lot of them were drowned by highway construction or other projects that, that redirected water. But there are a lot of senescent old pine trees that are dying off. And so we have a lot of standing dead timber. And uh, just as you say, it creates this rich habitat for a wide variety of bird species and, and others. Birds just get the, most of the attention, uh, especially for me being a birder. And one of the iconic species that breeds here that is uh, in trouble in much of its range is the olive-sided flycatcher, which is an obligate cavity nester. It, it has to have standing dead trees and it has to have woodpeckers dig nest cavities for it. And also we're seeing western bluebirds proliferate here on the coast in recent years. Uh, I think in large part because those, those snag forests are opening up a lot more nesting habitat for them. Yeah, ab absolutely. I think one of the big takeaways from the last time we talked with you was the worst thing you could do in a fire landscape, a place where a fire just happened, is to basically go in and try to fix it. That salvage logging is is a terrible idea, and basically anything else you do does more harm than good. Is that a correct ass assessment? It, it is. It is. You know, I mean, there there are things that we need to do after fires that that really pertain mostly to human infrastructure. 
you know, there there are things that that uh, are are created by by people that can be damaged or destroyed that need to be fixed and repaired. That's a different story, you know. But but when it comes to these ecosystems, these ecosystems that go back not just thousands, not just even millions, but tens of millions of years, these processes, long, long, long before any humans walked the earth, you know, they we're, we're not helping and they don't need our help after fire. Um, nature's got this covered and, you know, she's, she's taking care of it all, all on her own. And, 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 you know, it's, it's, um, it's important to realize too, that, um, we have small fires now and we have big fires and, and we had small fires and we had big fires historically, you know, even the biggest ones we're seeing now, you know, these are not, these are not events that, uh, that are, are unprecedented in the evolutionary history of these ecosystems. There are certainly in some cases fires that are bigger than our modern records. We only go back to about 1950 with fairly consistent record keeping. Even then there are gaps. But uh, prior to 1950, our records are, are, are incredibly gap riddled and uh, are, are, are extremely incomplete and inconsistent. And we have some records that go back to about 1910. But, but basically, you know, the modern record keeping is 1950 to present. So it's important to realize is that just because we don't have records of fires of a certain size, you know, since 1950, that doesn't mean they didn't occur in, uh, you know, 1889 or 1829 or, or in the 1700s or, you know, thousands of years ago, because they did. Well, in that regard, uh, it seems that uh, people are thinking about climate change as kind of unprecedented in a way. And, we're having these large fires. Uh, well, I, can't, I think what you're saying is, yeah, there's precedent in the, in the evolutionary record uh, of, of these ecosystems. You just have to go back a lot further and don't you know, narrow your thinking to just the last 100 or 200 years. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think you know, one thing that's, that climate change is doing is that is that the fires are, are, are really very, very weather and climate driven. You know, climate change is certainly a significant influence on wildfire behavior. Um, there's no question about that. There's, there's a lot of evidence indicating that. And, and I think what that means is it, it just all the more it indicates we need to completely change our, our focus and the way we respond to fires. Um, we are not able to suppress fires once they are driven by wind and, and hot, dry, windy conditions. Um, it's simply not possible. Even if it doesn't even have to be a red flag day, you know, with the, the most extreme fire weather, even inter- under relatively mild fire weather, once a fire gets moving, it really can't be suppressed or stopped until the weather changes and then it will slow and stop. The, the temperatures cool, uh, the relative humidity goes up, the winds die down, maybe there's a little bit of rain. That's when fires slow and stop. The only times we're actually suppressing fires is when it's low fire weather and the ignition just started. And usually the fire is just a fraction of an acre and it's very easy to suppress a fire thing because it's basically not even moving because you don't have the conditions, the hot, dry, windy conditions that allow a fire to move. And that's when the vast majority of fires are put out. But when fires start moving under conditions or if they ignite under conditions that even have you know relatively moderate um, and sometimes even somewhat mild fire weather, it, they're, they're, they're just really driven by weather and climate. And, um, and it doesn't matter how dense the forest is. It doesn't matter how many dead trees there are. Those, uh, this idea that uh, fires are burning big because the forests are overgrown. We should probably talk about that because that's, that's really been a, a, that's a very discredited notion now scientifically. Um, a lot of the more open forests are burning uh, more intensely, more rapidly. Um, uh, and it really is about, uh, about the wind. Uh, and and the the temperature and and the the relative humidity more than anything. 
Right. Those three factors, right? Wind, temperature, and relative humidity. The, those, those are basically what it's all about. That's right. If you've just joined us, uh, you're listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX. And our guest tonight is ecologist Chad Hansen. He's the director of the John Muir Project and the chief ecologist. And he is, his new book is called Smokescreen, Debunking Wildfire Myths to Save Our Forests and Our Climate. What's the number one myth you're debunking in this book? <laughs> I don't know if I'd rank them necessarily. I, I go through a number of them, but but uh, there there are several big ones. Uh, but I will I will talk about the the, the what I call the, the myth of overgrown forests, the overgrown forest myth, because you know this is driving this particular myth is driving some of the most destructive and and counterproductive forest policies um, out there. Um, and we really need to change course for climate change mitigation and for biodiversity conservation, as well as community protection. And I'll explain that in a minute. But basically, you know, the, the, you, we've all heard some version of this, this myth. There's the idea is our forests are, are overgrown. Uh, there's too much, too many trees in the forest. There's too much biomass in the forest um, because of fire suppression. And, um, and, and because of that, and also, you know, the dead trees are a big you know, factor here in this, in, in this narrative. And because of that, that's what's driving the fires. That's what's making fires burn big or, or burn hot. And so, therefore, if we just roll back environmental laws and, uh, and, and increase subsidies for logging, we can reduce the density of our forests and that will curb the fires. That is the narrative out there that, that, that basically defines the overgrown forest myth. Here's what the science is telling us. That wildland fire is driven overwhelmingly by weather and climate. Obviously, you need fuel. You need something to burn. But I don't really like the term fuel because it really just doesn't describe a forest ecosystem. Uh, you need something to burn. But mostly what's burning is pine needles. It's small twigs. It's dry leaves. It's, it's really, really small diameter material. It's dry grasses. Uh, it's not tree trunks. It's not branches of trees. Uh, they can get scorched on the outside, certainly. But they're not being consumed. They're not driving flames. What drives fires are very, very fine, fine material. And, um, and so, yes, you have to have that. Uh, but mostly, basically, it's, it's those hot, dry, windy conditions, especially in a drought year like, like this year. And uh, when you have those conditions, the fire is going to be moved by the weather, uh, by those, those weather and climate factors uh, overwhelmingly. The interesting thing is that this overgrown forest narrative, this myth, uh, assumes or proposes this idea that if you have more trees, if you have more biomass, more wood in the forest, there's that, that therefore is more fuel and it will make fires burn more intensely. Well, certainly a denser, mature forest has more biomass in it, but the vast, vast majority of that, literally about 98, 99% or more of the tree biomass is literally non-combustible in a forest fire. And we know this from numerous field studies, including a study we're doing right now, um, but others that have already been published, is that you know, only the outer bark, uh, the smallest twigs, the, pine, the, the needles can get consumed, and, uh, and really small seedlings and very small saplings. Sure. When you go and look at a burned landscape, you know, what you see is a bunch of standing trunks. Exactly. They don't burn it's, up, right? That's and, where the biomass is. Yeah. That's right, because the carbon is still there in the ecosystem. Only about 1% or 2% of the tree carbon is actually consumed in a fire, uh, even a big fire. And uh, sometimes it can be 3%, but usually it's uh, less than you know, less than 2%, sometimes even less than 1%. 
And, and of course, you know, that's recouped very quickly because of the regrowth, uh, because the fires cycle nutrients and it creates a, 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 a nutrient rich bed of mineral ash uh, from the, the twigs and the needles and the leaves and the uh, downwood that's, uh, that's consumed. And so that spurs and enhances uh, natural regrowth and therefore carbon sequestration for many, many years to come after a fire. But when these logging operations happen, they do a, they do a few things. Um, they not only remove um, the vast majority of what they're removing under the guise of fuel reduction is literally non-combustible in a forest fire. And so that's misleading. But the second thing that happens is logging operations, for example, commercial thinning, it reduces the cooling shade of the forest canopy cover. And that creates more desiccated conditions, hotter, drier conditions on the forest floor. It literally changes the microclimate of the forest. And, um, and so you know, really what's happening there in large part is moisture is being removed from the system. Shade is being removed from the system. Uh, a windbreak, the windbreak effect that a denser forest has is being reduced in that system. And so what happens is the winds that drive the flames can sweep through that forest more rapidly because there's not as much of a wind buffer. Uh, the forest ecosystem and the forest floor is more desiccated um, and is drier uh, than a dense forest with a higher canopy cover. And in addition, uh, these logging operations, like commercial thinning, they leave behind a lot of combustible logging slash debris, even if they try to remove portions of it. And they often spread uh, invasive combustible grasses like cheatgrass. And so for a host of reasons, these areas are often burning more rapidly, often burning more intensely. And, um, and of course, you know, in many cases, most of the trees were killed in the first place by the thinning project itself before the fire even got there, which is something that's not accounted for in the studies uh, from Forest Service scientists that claim that thinning is very effective. They don't talk about the 80% of the trees that were killed before the fire occurred, which is kind of a big bias uh, in, my, in my view. Is the time dynamics uh, really important? Because what I've heard, uh, thinking about just protecting my own home, is that if you have uh, low grasses, they burn, but they, the fire moves very quickly through. But when it hits trees and brush, then it stays longer. And it gets maybe, uh, if it gets into the top of trees, it may be that it doesn't burn a lot of biomass or carbon, but it transports that fire and it could get near human structures. What we're really worried about is our own homes and infrastructure and protecting it. So just thinking of the time dynamics as being maybe another way to look at this beside where all the biomass is and what gets destroyed in the forest. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And that's a really good way to think about it. You know, different vegetation types burn at different rates. Uh, and this is one of the things that happens when you remove, you know, trees from an ecosystem, you know, you remove, you know, shrubs, woody material, it tends to get replaced by flashier material um, in, in the sense, in the fire sense, like grasses, for example. And uh, because grasses like a lot of sunlight and uh, fire can spread much more rapidly through grass than it can through through trees. Um, it spreads much more, most rapidly through grass, uh, next most rapidly through shrubs and then least rapidly through through trees, especially dense forests. In fact, you know, forest fires are much, much, much slower than most people realize. Grass fires can be pretty, pretty fast, but forest fires are really, really slow compared to what most people think. You know, you hear this, this another myth out there is that uh, the fires are moving through these forests. You hear this, you know, faster than a bird can fly or a horse can run. You know, that's a, a, a thing that you get picked up once in a while. 
the reality is, is that, um, you know, even these biggest forest fires, on average, they're moving at just a small fraction of one mile per hour um, through the course of the fire. You will get brief periods of time, brief moments, sometimes even, even several hours where it will move faster, sometimes one mile per hour or half a mile per hour. But that's relatively uncommon. Um, that's, you know, we're seeing, you know, a big, big day of spread is eight miles in a given direction, three miles in a given direction. Um, but, you know, just doing the math on that, you're talking about, you know, one third, one half of a mile per hour is being really, really fast days. And sometimes you'll get over one mile. You hear a lot of talk about fire tornadoes in certain areas. And it's like you get this mental picture of these horrendous things. You cannot run. They're hot. They're, you know, just living hell. <laughs> and th those things aren't moving fast. The tornadoes. No. They're really not. Um, they're spinning fast, but they're not moving fast across the landscape. And I've actually been to the location of, of, of some of these uh, what people call, you know, fire natos. You know, I mean, it, this is a natural phenomenon. It's been going on for a very, very long time. And it'll happen in particular locations in a big fire, but it may only occur uh, over the course of maybe five or 10 acres. You know, the, the most recent one I saw probably spanned about 10 acres. And it mostly just, you know, kind of slowly kind of circulate in this one spot and it broke off some trees and it, it certainly burned at high intensity in that area. It was a nice patch of snag forest. Um, most of the tops already broken off by the, by the, 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 the swirling wind, but, um, but it, it didn't spread across the landscape at, at, at any significant rate. There's a, there's a lot of misconceptions that are out there floating around, but it sounds like it's, it's easy to be, uh, to be misled. You're, Degree in marine biology probably didn't include a whole lot of fire-related uh, studies <laughs> on the seafloor. <laughs> One thing you might see in the seafloor, uh, if you go into the Santa Barbara Basin, for instance, and take deep cores that go back uh, thousands of years, you might see the ash from fires that settles out and barbs in the, in the sediment. Yeah. That would help you interpret the history of uh, fires in California. Yeah. Uh, in fact, there was a, a really cool study on that uh, some years ago. Yeah. You and uh, Dr. Uh, Della Sala did some research on uh, the, the sort of the paleo history of fires in the West. Well, we, we did a we did a stand age analysis. Um, we went back uh, several hundred years using uh, stand age reconstruction and uh, and uh, basically interpreting that the rate of new stand initiation. Uh, to interpret uh, uh, how frequently high-intensity fire occurred in any given century, going back um, uh, several hundred years, and uh, it's interesting. You know, we actually had more high-intensity fire historically in in forests of California and elsewhere in the West than we do in recent decades. Now that gap is get is gotten uh, is gotten uh, a little narrower in recent years because we've had some big fire years. So the deficit of fire, is, as many ecologists call it, is not as big as it was even back in 2015 when we, when we talked last, but, uh, but we still have less than we had historically. And you know, I, tell, I say to people all the time, you know, we don't want too much fire. We don't want too little fire, but it's not like there was one exact thing where fire always occurred in exactly the same rate or scale in every single year. Historically, it's what we call a natural range of variability. And, um, you know, we're still actually on the low end of that natural range of variability, uh, you know, in terms of the last uh, 20, 
20 plus years. And so, um, yeah, I don't think we, we need to worry about, about, uh, you know, there being too much fire right, right now. It's possible, you know, that, uh, that we'll, we'll have that conversation in the future. I actually think that that's probably not going to happen because there's so many feedback loops, uh, that, uh, fire is kind of self-regulating in many ways. Um, and, uh, but but I think, you know, that's that's where we need to think, you know, is it in, within the natural range of variability? And a lot, I think a lot of people assume we have too much fire, too much high intensity fire, but we really don't. Yeah, it's, I think it's worth taking a moment to, to review some of the, the language that we use about these fires, because there's a lot of different terms that get thrown around and some of them are uh, kind of prejudicial language in some ways. Uh, what Bob kind of referred to for a bit was the, you know, the popular media presentation of fire uses words like catastrophic or destructive. Uh, one of my favorites is to see a, a headline that says, you know, 200,000 acres destroyed in a fire. And yeah. of course, none of those acres were destroyed. They're, they're still there. Every, you, know, you, you don't destroy acreage, you don't, and you don't even destroy forest in a fire, as you've pointed out. So there's that, but there's also these technical terms like, you know, stand replacing fire. And then the the different terms to refer to fire severity. I wonder if you could just take a couple of minutes and kind of go through that for people. So when they read these articles, they kind of have a better understanding of what people are talking about. What's a low severity fire, medium severity, high severity fire? What does stand replacing fire mean? Those kinds of things. Sure. Yeah. And um, and by the way, just in terms of the language and a lot of the pejorative terms that are used uh, to, to describe fire in the, in the kind of popular conversation. Um, I have a whole chapter devoted to that in my book, Smokescreen, because I think it's so important to, to move away from that kind of um, hyperbolic language so we can actually, you know, focus on the science and get to real solutions about how we best protect communities, for example. Um, and uh, so we understand post-fire succession. But uh, yeah, in terms of some of the, the core terms, uh, fire severity, I mean, fire severity, you know, the technical definition is it's really just a measure, especially when it comes to vegetation. It's a measure of the percent of the above ground, you know, dominant vegetation that is killed by the fire. So if you want to think about it in terms of a, a stand of, of conifer forest, um, the, the typical definition is less than 25% of the trees killed its low intensity or low severity. Uh, 25 to 75% is moderate severity. And 75 to 100% is high severity. Those, those definitions vary a little bit. Sometimes people will set the thresholds at slightly different places. But um, oftentimes we talk about intensity of fires too. And the technical definition of intensity is really the energy release from the fire. Um, now, the, the reality is, is that fire intensity and fire severity are highly correlated. And so if you have a high intensity fire occurring in a given area, you are very, very likely to have a high severity fire uh, effects uh, on the vegetation as well. Now, I actually um, purposefully try to, to avoid using the term severity, even though it's very, very deeply ingrained in this field. Because severity, in my view, has an, an intrinsically pejorative connotation. You know, severe is seen as bad. Um, severe is something to be avoided. It's negative. Whereas intensity is a fairly neutral term. And um, so I think it's really important to use neutral terms. And as you mentioned, you know, we, there's a lot of terms that are not neutral <laughs> in a lot of the, the media coverage. You know, <laughs> catastrophic wildfire, uh, uh, you know, just 
coverage saying that fires destroyed or incinerated um, uh, you know, areas. I read an article this morning that said that uh, where crown fire occurs, it obliterates the forest, which isn't even remotely true scientifically. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, uh, you know, and we need to get away from that because th the problem is, is that that kind of demonization of fire is not only inconsistent with our, the current state of scientific knowledge, but it's also driving really wrongheaded policies. When politicians hear that, they want to double down on logging subsidies. They want to double down on rollbacks on environmental laws. And then we see more devastation from logging, more carbon removed from the forest, most of which goes into the atmosphere, makes climate change worse. Uh, more loss of wildlife habitat. And usually where that logging occurs, when the next fire occurs, it burns hotter and faster, oftentimes toward a town, putting people at risk. And so these policies are making climate change worse, they're harming biodiversity, and they're risking communities, and we really need to move away from them. But, you know, a lot of it is being driven by these problematic narratives and the language associated with it. It seems like you're advocating for um, turning societal attention kind of away from these wrong-headed forest management uh, strategies and moving towards, let's put their energy into protecting homes from fire and making hardened and clearing the landscape or whatever has to be done to minimize the amount of human damage to human structures and, and altering our economy and our lives. That That's exactly right. And, and, and well said, I mean, it's, we, we need a 180 degree shift from our current focus and our current management practices, which are overwhelmingly oriented towards backcountry logging and backcountry fire suppression. We need to move away from that and we need to redirect our resources toward uh, jobs programs to create fire safe communities to help people do uh, basic home hardening steps and uh, annual defensible space pruning within 100 feet of homes. And basically they're simple steps. Uh, ember-proof vents on exterior vents to prevent those, those flaming embers driven by the winds in advance of the fire, uh, to prevent those embers from being driven through an old uh, coarse wire mesh attic vent, for example. Um, that's the way a lot of homes are igniting is those exterior vents because they don't have um, the fine wire mesh, uh, modern ember-proof vents. It's really just a few hundred dollars in many cases can save a home from burning. And there are a lot of different companies that make these, and you can very simply install them in a, in a single afternoon. Uh, rain gutter guards, another key one to keep uh, dry leaves and pine needles from accumulating in the rain gutters next to the roof, because an ember can land on the roof and roll down into the rain gutter, cause an ignition. Um, defensible space pruning, of course, when obviously sweeping you know, leaves and, and, and pine needles off the roof, that's key. And then a defensible space, which, you know, a lot of people ask, well, you know, I like the trees next to my house. Well, you know, you don't have to cut your trees down. In fact, you shouldn't. You want that shade. But you you want to remove the lower limbs. Um, you want to remove dry grasses. You want to keep the, the, the duff and litter um, at very low levels close to the house, especially when the first five or 10 feet, you really want that you clear of, of you know, um, dry leaves and pine needles and small twigs and things like that. Um, it's really it's really the first five or 10 feet that's the most important. And the next you know, 10, 10 to 30 feet is the second most important. Interestingly, what the science is telling us is that once you get more than 100 feet away from homes, there's no additional benefit to vegetation management. And usually it's 60 feet. And so anything we're doing out in the wildlands more than 60 or 100 feet away from homes is not doing anything additional to protect homes. 
And in fact, ironically, it's often making those fires burn faster toward the homes next time a fire occurs. So yeah, I'm, I'm really recommending that we focus heavily on community protection, on public safety, keeping, making sure homes don't burn and making sure people and their animals uh, can safely evacuate and that the assistance is provided to make sure that happens. Some of that money that's uh, spent by the Forest Service on forest management could be redirected to maybe some other parts of, of government to uh, uh, do more to protect uh, our homes. A- absolutely. Yeah, and speaking of money, uh, uh, I don't know if it's in the budget adopted or a proposed budget, but uh, there's been a lot of talk about uh, the governor's proposal to spend close to a billion dollars on fire protection, and 90% of it is uh, aimed at fuels reduction projects and only 10% of it at hardening communities and homes. Right. So so that's definitely where Governor Newsom is at. Um, in fact, uh, the most current uh, estimates that I've seen uh, is that 97% uh, of what he's proposing is for um, logging and other type of habitat uh, uh, ma- uh, vegetation management, removal of chaparral, for example, out in wildlands, you know, distant from homes. And only about 3% is for actual home hardening and community protection and defense from wildfire. And to me, that is, uh, that's unthinkable right now, given, given the losses that we're seeing um, in communities yeah. um, from wildfire. We know this is effective. We have numerous case studies of towns where they got serious about home hardening and defensible space, and over 95% of homes are surviving. In many cases, over 99% of homes are surviving, and people and their animals are getting out safely. If this is where the focus is, it can be done extremely effectively. You know, these losses are almost entirely preventable. And so, you know, in my view, um, given what we saw in Paradise um, in the fall of 2018, given what we just saw this year um, happen to Greenville and then Grizzly right. Flats, you know, just a week, a week or, or two later, um, we, we have to focus on communities. We have to focus on saving homes and lives. And these logging projects out in the wildlands are not doing that. So when Governor Newsom says uh, he wants to double down on fuel reduction, um, that's just a term. That's a political term. That's not a scientific term. You know, these these um, logging projects and chaparral removal projects that they're doing under the guise of fuel reduction are not reducing fuels. In fact, they're actually creating more of the material that burns more rapidly and spreads fires more rapidly. Um, and the same thing, uh, unfortunately, um, in the uh, infrastructure package that the Senate just passed and that the Biden administration is, is promoting, um, it has... Um, uh, billions of dollars of new subsidies for logging uh, um, under the guise of fuel reduction and more rollbacks of environmental laws and more mandates uh, to increase logging. This is exactly the opposite of the direction we need to go because removing that carbon from the forest is most of that carbon goes into the atmosphere. Very little ends up in a two by four in a structure somewhere. Um, and um, and removing that carbon compromises the ability of the forest to to sequester and store carbon and draw down carbon out of our atmosphere, which we need our forests to do. Um, it's it's uh, it's really it's like a triple whammy. You know, it's making climate change worse. It's harming wildlife habitat, and it's usually putting communities at, at greater risk and giving them a false sense of security that somehow it's protected them. Are we suffering from uh, uh, institutional inertia here, or? Is it they're listening to the lobbyists that are, uh, or is some combination of different things that we can't change the course of uh, the ship here? 
Well, there, there definitely, there's definitely some institutional inertia, and there's definitely uh, you know logging industry lobbyists and lo- lobbyists from the biomass industry that want to perpetuate these current policies. And um, and it's not just Republicans, unfortunately, getting the, the logging industry money. It's all, also some powerful Democrats. Um, having said that, we absolutely can uh, you know t- turn the course of this ship in a different direction. We can we can change direction, but we're going to have to hold politicians accountable. We're going to have to start talking about the wrongheadedness of these policies and the consequences of these policies and how profoundly ineffective this approach of backcountry logging and backcountry fire suppression under the guise of fuel reduction and thinning and, and, and other terms, um, how profoundly ineffective and counterproductive it's been, especially given the losses of, of towns we've seen in recent years, surrounded by these so-called thinning and fuel reduction projects. Um, you know, some of which we've mentioned, but there are many other uh, towns that have been lost that we, you know, we, we haven't talked about. And so, you know, these are cases where in you know, fire after fire, these fires are burning through thousands of acres, oftentimes very rapidly through these thinned areas and then burning down towns. And, and it doesn't have to be that way. We, we really can prevent that. And, uh, and we just, you know, we need to, these are 19th century policies that they're trying to shoehorn in a tw- into a 21st century world. And we really just need to recognize that and change direction. Is, is the problem here that the governor isn't hearing from the right scientists or is there uh, not a scientific consensus and the, sci- the scientific community is still arguing about what the right way to proceed is? Well, I would um, I, th- I think that the situation calls for you know a higher level of candor. So I would say that the problem is that the, the governor Newsom is really ignoring the, the, the strong weight of the scientific evidence. And uh, unfortunately, so is so is uh, President Biden. Um, Here's the reality is that there's a relatively small subset of the scientists who are funded by the logging industry or some or, or agencies who are involved in commercial logging, like the U.S. Forest Service. But most scientists strongly disagree with those logging policies and they want us to move in a different direction. And we know that from uh, letters to Congress from hundreds of scientists on this issue. And so I think that, you know, scientists, uh, politicians really just need to be, pay attention to what the overwhelming weight of scientific evidence and opinion is saying. Is there any National Academy of Science studies? Uh, is they, they carry some weight if you get kind of solidify the consensus within the National Academy and, and, uh, and issue a report, you can, you know, you can waive that <laughs> with some authority. Yeah, I think there's a number of different ways to, to sort of gauge scientific consensus. And, uh, you know, there's, there are certainly studies out there that have, you know, large numbers of scientists, you know, saying that, that, uh, that these current policies uh, and past policies are, are wrong and we need to change direction. There are also, you know, sign-on letters from hundreds of scientists to world governments, including the uh, U.S. Congress. Um, and so I think that, you know, we really just need to look at the totality of the evidence um, unfortunately, you know, there's a small subset of scientists who are funded by the U.S. Forest Service, which, of course, you know, as you know, is involved in the commercial logging business. And those scientists are very, very vocal and they have a lot of media support um, from the Forest Service's public affairs office, setting up press interviews and making sure that their voice is amplified disproportionately in the public dialogue. Yeah. And you see memes on social media like uh, log it, graze it or watch it burn and I don't think those were spontaneously generated, uh, but they're getting widely disseminated, and it's a it's a catchy little message people like to hear. But uh, it doesn't seem to have much scientific backing. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, this field. Um, I tell people uh, in my field of forest and fire ecology, it's it's kind of like opposite world. You know, so many of the truths that are emerging from the scientific evidence 
are very much the opposite of what you might assume intuitively. Um, like I said earlier, you know, people assume, well, a denser forest must have more fuel. It must burn more intensely. It's not that simple. It's usually the opposite. Um, people assume that um, if a fire burns hot in a given area and kills most of the trees, that must be destroyed or it must be habitat lost. You know, again, you know, it's uh, it's very much the opposite. And so, so many things that um, that we thought were true in the past, we've learned are, are not. I think you've either have reviewed or participated in studies where uh, you've been able to compare parts of forests uh, and the impact of fire on them in which we, you, you could compare the, the managed versus the unmanaged parts of the forest to, to look at the impacts of these uh, forest, so-called forest management uh, policies. Yeah, so, so, so this is actually another thing that's, that's happened since we, we talked last in, in 2015. Um, my colleagues and I uh, got together and we actually did the largest scientific analysis ever done on the question of forest management and fire severity. Um, we published that in 2016 in the journal Ecosphere. Uh, the study is Bradley et al. 2016. I, I co-authored that. And um, we looked at three decades of data, the entire Western United States, uh, and uh, over 1,500 fires spanning 20, over 23 million acres of fire areas. So huge, huge data analysis. And we actually uh, controlled for forest type. And what we really looked at was was different variables and uh, the effect of forest management and forest management intensity to basically the level of forest protection or lack thereof. What we found is forests with the fewest environmental protections and the most logging burned the most intensely. And, uh, and forests with the highest level of environmental protection and little logging or no logging had the lowest levels of fire intensity. They still had mixed intensity fire, which you want, you want to mix. But overall, fire intensity is actually uh, higher fire intensity is associated with more forest management. Exactly the opposite of what a lot of politicians are, are assuming right now um, and are basing policies on those assumptions uh, incorrectly. We also found, by the way, that weather and climate variables were dominant, uh, but forest management is a key secondary factor. And uh, more forest management uh, generally means hotter, faster fires. I think a lot of forest managers nowadays would claim that they're doing a better job, that they've learned a lot about forest practices and that uh, going forward, the you know, they won't make the same mistakes that they made in the past. And I, uh, I know that that's a common refrain in every human endeavor. Every generation believes that they're a lot smarter than the previous generation. And I just wonder what the science has to say about current forest practices and whether they really are all that much different from what's been done in the past? Yeah, that's a good question because it definitely is a, a narrative that you hear out there, certainly from the logging industry and the forest service that, uh, well, you know, that was then, this is now, you know, we're, we've learned a lot. We're doing things differently now. What I see on the ground um, is that what, what has changed mostly are the terms used to describe logging. They become, um, much more opaque to the public, much more difficult to discern what was really being said. You know, even the term thinning, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to where they think that thinning is, you know, people out there with pruning shears. You know, they think that these are these very, very, uh, mm -hmm. you know, light touch operations. They don't realize that thinning is logging. It's, these, are, these are industrial logging operations. Let me just give you an example. Um, the typical thinning project on national forests um, in, in the Sierra Nevada, for example, but this is also true in other regions, is um, 
it kills and removes upwards of 60 or 70% of the trees in a given stand, including many mature trees, even some old growth trees. In the Sierra Nevada, the default diameter limit for thinning projects is 30 inches in diameter, which is nearly eight feet in circumference. Increasingly, thinning projects are going up to 40 inches in diameter, which is over 10 feet in circumference. And, um, and these are old growth trees. And uh, in fact, even though numerically the majority of trees being removed are, are small, technically, most of the wood, most of the biomass, most of the carbon, and therefore most of the habitat being removed from the forest in these thinning projects is in the form of mature and old trees, even old growth trees. And so people are not getting what they're what they they think they're buying. You know, they're being sold something different. <laughs> and it's a lot of this is just u- misleading euphemisms, misleading terminology. Um, they don't talk about clear cutting anymore like they used to uh, in the 1980s. They're still doing clear cutting, but they don't call it clear cutting. Now they call it um, post-fire restoration, or they call it reforestation, or they even call it fuels reduction. We're seeing some logging projects, uh, massive logging projects. There was one on the Medicine Bow National Forest in in Wyoming, just to take it out of California for the moment. Uh, Tens of thousands of acres of clear cutting and old growth forests and roadless areas. And the Forest Service was calling that fuel reduction. And of course, you know, the science is very clear that clear cuts don't uh, don't curb fires. Fires usually burn faster through clear cuts and other intensively managed forests. But uh, but, you know, if if the terms are are benign or benevolent sounding enough, a lot of people get misled by that, including a lot of politicians, unfortunately. And I think that's the biggest danger. We're still seeing huge clear cuts. We're still seeing a lot of, you know, you know really de- uh, destructive logging under the guise of thinning. Um but the euphemisms have proliferated more than forest management has changed. I'll just reintroduce our guest for those of you listening along. Uh, we were having a great discussion here on the Ecology Hour with Dr. Chad Hansen, who is co-founder and director of the John Muir Project and author of the new book, Smokescreen, Debunking Wildfire Myths to Save Our Forests and Our Climate. Uh, and I'm, I just was looking at an article uh, where that suggests it could have been subtitled "Why We Should Love Dead Trees," and <laughs> very much appeals to me. It's a song I've been singing for a couple of years. Uh, Dr. Hansen, we only have a few minutes left in the Ecology Hour, so I'm going to let people know that we'll put some links up on our website for uh, anyone who wants to follow up uh, and find more about the scientific research that's being done into this these phenomena, and that website is ecologyhour.wordpress.com. And I wonder if you have uh, also some suggestions for where people might find your book or more uh, about the work that you're doing with the John Muir Project. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. Well, people can get my book Smokescreen uh, on either Amazon or bookshop.com. And you can just Google the the name of the book, uh, Smokescreen, uh, Debunking Wildfire Myths to Save Our Forests and Our Climate. Um, and you can buy it in either one of those uh, venues. And uh, as far as uh, more information about a lot of these issues, uh, we have uh, tons of information on the John Muir Project's website. Uh, and that's uh, www.johnmuirproject.org. Great. And I also wanted to mention before we, uh, before I forget and before we lose you, um, that you've actually visited the Mendocino Coast recently. Is that correct? I missed a chance to meet you in person at Casper just a few weeks ago. Uh, but you got a chance to come see the coastal side of the Redwood Forest. 
I did. I did. It's uh, it's it's wonderful and beautiful, and uh, and uh, it's you know another area that really needs to be protected uh, from from logging uh, that's going on. And um, and uh, yes, I was there recently at, at a great forest uh, forest protection rally um, in Casper uh, to protect uh, Jackson mm-hmm. State Forest, and uh, uh, I very much support that goal. Yeah, that, that that whole thing with the Jackson State Forest right now is just echoing everything that you've been talking about in the last part of the show with the language that's being used and uh, basically attempting to paint uh, a timber timber production operation as a fuels reduction operation. Do you have any uh, comments before we leave on fire in the in, the, in our local area here? Uh, when I moved here, I thought, well. It uh, stays green. It's pretty foggy all summer. It doesn't dry out too badly. Uh, I don't know if you have any comments on our susceptibility to fire here on the coast. Well, you know, it's it's like uh, it's like all forests. Uh, it has a natural fire regime. The coastal forests there, you know, with uh, uh, coast redwood and Douglas fir, uh, uh, for example. Um, you know, this is an ecosystem that has a natural uh, mixed intensity fire regime. Uh, regenerates very vigorously and abundantly uh, after uh, fire. Um, there was a, a really cool study that just came out a couple of days ago on that, for example, um, uh, based on recent fire. And um, and so it's very fire adapted, uh, but uh, you know, fire is not going to happen as frequently as it will in certain forests. Uh, because there is a lot more moisture in the system, a lot more precipitation, and so you know it's really going to happen mostly in those in those drought years. Um, but uh, certainly, if you get those drought years and you've got those hotter, drier, windier conditions, and you have a lightning ignition, um, you're certainly going to get a wildland fire. And and um, and uh, the system is uh, very very much um, has evolved around that uh, natural disturbance process for for many millions of years, and so all kinds of Really, really interesting and cool things happen after fire uh, in coast redwoods, just like uh, it happens in other forest ecosystems. I think we're probably pretty close to running out of time. So I'll just ask you uh, if you have some final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with. Well, I'd say, you know, in, in the big picture, it's it, we really need to just accept the importance of, of fire in our forests. Um that we're we're not going to stop fire in our forests. We shouldn't stop fire in our forests. That fire is as essential in our forest ecosystems as as sun and rain. Um, the fire regimes are not the same in every forest ecosystem. Certainly in the coast redwoods, uh, the fire frequency is not the same. The fire uh, sizes are not necessarily the same as they are in other forests, but. But uh, it, there are natural fire regimes in all of our forest ecosystems. And, and once we accept that and understand that, that we're not going to stop fires with billions of dollars of fire suppression uh, expenditures every year, we're just going to damage forests. We're not going to stop fires with billions of dollars of, of logging subsidies and increasing logging. Um, and we can redirect those funds to, to making sure that we create fire safe communities and create a whole lot of jobs in the process toward that end. And that's really where we need to go. Keep the carbon in our forests, just like we're trying to keep the carbon in the ground. It's a good message. All right, Dr. Hanson, thank you for being with us. Uh, it was a very enlightening and enjoyable conversation. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. I'd be happy to do it anytime. You've been listening to Dr. Chad Hansen on the Ecology Hour. He is uh, co-founder and director of the John Muir Project. And his recent book is Smokescreen, Debunking Wildfire Myths to Save Our Forests and Our Climate. Extremely timely as we're recording this at the end of August. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your evening. 
This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.